hanging half a hundred on them at Owen Field. Or the run rules on the diamond at Love's Field. We're giving you the breakdowns, the bets, and the hot takes from the perspective of two former OU Athletics employees. You're listening to the Mainline Podcast with Tyler Burton and Adam Jaquez. Let's go! Let's go! 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 Let's go. It's the Mainline Podcast. Tyler, my head is spinning. I've been going through Big 12 tiebreaker scenarios all evening, all afternoon. I'm still not sure if I know completely what's going on, but we're going to do our best. We're going to try to break some of those down. We're going to talk a little bit about West Virginia. We're going to look ahead to BYU. We've got playoff talk. We've got Texas A&M fallout. We've got a loaded show, so uh, we've got a lot to cover this evening. But uh, before we dive in, Tyler, how are you doing? JFK assassination, Area 51. Did the United States actually land on the moon? Now we can add Oklahoma is getting screwed on purpose by the Big 12. Add it to the list of conspiracies. Adam, I'm great. Head's obviously spinning, but this is going to be a lot better than it was the last two times we've had a chance to record this podcast. Oklahoma defeats West Virginia 59-20. to And you know, Adam, I want to touch on Jeff Levy here real quick. Let's just get this out of the way right off the bat. He may not pay attention to social media, but you would have thought Jeff Levy heard all the cries from the fans this last week because he answered the call. Zero plays behind the line of scrimmage. Oklahoma pushed the ball down the field. They ran for 240-plus yards. This was the best the offense has looked since Arkansas State. Most complete game Oklahoma has played all season long, and it was a great bounce back win. It gets you back on track, headed to Provo. I'm fired up to get up to Utah this weekend. Yeah, it was exciting. I finally saw some downfield throws Uh and kind of like a little bit of a, I don't know, like I don't think anyone's really talking about this much, but I think that might have been Dylan Gabriel's one of his worst performances of the year, which sounds crazy to say because he had eight touchdowns. But he missed a lot of throws. He was behind the receivers all night. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm I'm one of the biggest fans of Dylan Gabriel. I'm not one of those people out there that's calling for Jackson Arnold or saying that Dylan Gabriel's trash. I, I think he's going to go down as one of the most underappreciated quarterbacks in all of OU history, potentially. But he could have been significantly better on Saturday. So really, it just comes down to you didn't shoot yourself in the foot. Jeff Levy called it a great game, in my opinion. So we really haven't seen Levy's offense look exactly the same in any two games back-to-back all year. Uh, hopefully, though, he, he sees that, you know, hey, this was successful and sticks with it and allows Dylan Gabriel to, to attack downfield. And maybe we'll get an even cleaner performance out of uh, out of Gabriel. So you love to see it. But, uh, yeah, overall thoughts on, on offense. Like, what stood out to you? What looked nice um, from the uh, game on Saturday? Yeah, you got to start with Dylan Gabriel. Anytime that you're the Big 12 offense, Offensive Player of the Week, the Davey O'Brien National Quarterback of the Week, and you get named on the same day as a Davey O'Brien Award semifinalist. you got to start with DG here, number 8. 23 of 36, 423 yards, five touchdowns through the air. Oh, uh, Combine that with the fact that he also had three rushing touchdowns. He sets a new Oklahoma football record, eight total touchdowns in a game. First time it's ever happened. I believe Baker was the last one. He had seven. If, if I remember correctly, so DG etches his name into the record books. And, you know, Adam, you put this – you floated this this question out on Twitter a little bit earlier today. When you try to – you break out the report card, you look down at Dylan Gabriel's name, what's the letter grade assigned to QB1? And we had a lot of different responses, but to me, this is a clear-cut A. 
for me. Some people will say A plus, A minus. I'm going to go A minus here. Obviously, Oklahoma does have a couple of losses this season, but when you look at this guy's statistics all year long, 70.5% completion percentage, over 3,000 yards, 25 touchdowns through the year, just five interceptions to go along with 11 rushing touchdowns. Dylan Gabriel is actually the leading rusher uh, in terms of touchdowns for this Oklahoma football team. He has been the best quarterback in the Big 12 by far, and I don't think it's even close. I agree with you. I would give him a, just a solid A right there. I think he's mm-hmm. been better than I expected. I think he's improved from year two to, I guess, what? I guess year one to two at OU. And he's been a great leader, uh, a great presence for this team, someone that I think we will definitely miss next year, just that leadership aspect. Mm-hmm. So uh, I've been very impressed with him. I, I'm surprised that more OU fans, the majority of them were saying probably in the B territory, which is kind of crazy because there's no way there's no one else that they would put in as first team all big 12 but yet they're giving dylan gabriel a b and the most common complaint i I tweeted this out in response to some of those complaints was that well he misses some passes and it's like well the guy is 70 percent completion percentage that's good for number nine in the entire country and we're complaining Mm -hmm. that he misses some passes we're basically asking for perfection it's a tough fan base to please um, I think we've probably been a little bit overblown, just the fan base in general, on Jeff Lebby, on Dylan Gabriel, on, on pretty much everything. Sure. Uh, I try to keep it as level-headed as, as I can, but, man, like, I don't know what more you could ask for out of Dylan Gabriel. We know he's what he is. He came from UCF. We know he's a former three-star uh, quarterback. He's a little bit on the smaller side. We knew what we were getting. Like, I, I don't know if you'd call that grading on a curve, but mm-hmm. you know, I'd have to give him an A, considering – He's not the Heisman contender that we've had over the last decade, really. Yeah. And he's only here because we lost a Heisman winner in Caleb Williams. I know he won at USC, but he's sure. that type of talent. We all know that. It's kind of crazy when you go back and you look at Oklahoma's, you know, the the 10 games so far this season. It's kind of funny that Dylan Gabriel's two best performances were Texas and now against West Virginia. And both of those games are, are uh, scenarios in which it was blatantly obvious that he came out with a chip on his shoulder. He played with an edge. He had a fire in his belly uh, and, and, you know, really led the team. And I think that, you know, for the most part, the rest of the team kind of fed off that energy. I know they fed off of they fed off of DG. They fed off of Drake Stoops, some of the plays that he made uh, th- this this weekend. And it, it, make no mistake about it, Adam, it, he's, a, he's clear cut first team all Big 12, right? Dylan Gabriel is. Who else would you could you possibly put in front of him? I mean, the fact that Quinn Ewers missed two games, I think, is is kind of tough. And he lost the matchup against Dylan Gabriel in the Cotton mm-hmm. Bowl. So I don't know. TCU, Baylor, Texas Tech, they don't have anybody. Jason Bean is is okay, but he's not putting up great numbers or great performances necessarily. No. Um, you know, Rocco up in Iowa State. Will Howard. Mad, like nothing there. Kind of got benched But he's for a splitting game or time. Two. Like he's ceding yeah. time to Avery Johnson. Sure. Alan Bowman is, is really mad. John Rice Plumley has missed a lot of games. Uh, Cincinnati's out Houston's out mm-hmm. so I mean West Virginia's quarterback Garrett Green he's he's not effective so it's Dylan Gabriel or or yours really yeah and Gabriel at least won that matchup and is putting up great numbers elsewhere hasn't had any you know games where he's had to sit out uh, knock on wood there so I don't know how sure. it's not Dylan Gabriel by landslide Absolutely. And another person that you would think for sure this guy's going to be first team all big 12 at the wide receiver position. That's Drake Stoops against West Virginia. Adam 10 catches 164 yards, three touchdowns. He leads the the conference in receptions. He leads the conference in touchdown catches first Oklahoma wide receiver since CD lamb 
to have 60 plus catches in Adam. You, you sent me the text a little bit earlier today. He was he was named as one of three finalists for the Burlesworth Trophy, which is awarded to the most outstanding player in college football who began his career as a walk-on. So Drake Soup's just uh, continuing to to stack performances. He had a, a hell of a game up in Stillwater against OSU. Combine that with the game against West Virginia. He's playing the best football in an Oklahoma uniform of his career. And you know, Adam, you just go down the list of Emmett Jones's group. Nick Anderson made some explosive plays down the field. It was great getting to see Jaden Gibson make a big play in the end zone on the deep ball on the long touchdown catch. Delil Farouk looked explosive. He looked super fast when he had the ball in his hands. And Adam, we finally had the Austin Stogner game. Four catches, 69 <laughs> yards, one touchdown. They threw him the football. He made some plays with the ball in his hands. Uh, and kind of like what we were talking about going into the season, having Austin back in an Oklahoma uniform in Norman, was he was going to be a kind of a mismatch in the red zone. And we just really haven't seen that up to this point in the season. Well, they finally uh, used him in the red zone. He was actually one of the ones – he was one of the poor throws. There were very few of them on Saturday. Dylan Gabriel actually missed a wide-open Austin Stogner, but he was able to find and connect with him a little bit later in the game. Uh, so huge shout-out to Emma Jones's crew and also Joe John Finley, uh, the production that he got out of Austin Stogner on Saturday night. It was fantastic. Another good performance on the ground for the Sooners uh, running the ball, but also protecting Dylan Gabriel. We've had some shuffling along the offensive mm-hmm. line. We had Tyler Guyton out this uh, past Saturday. It looks like we'll get him back against BYU. But what's your mm-hmm. overall thoughts on the offensive line? Most dominant performance from the from Oklahoma's offensive line that I think we've seen all season long. Tyler Guyton was banged up, like you alluded to, Adam. He couldn't go. So Jacob Sexton got his first start at right tackle. And outside of one or two plays, obviously that one sack that he gave up early in the game, I thought he looked really good. And he's got OU fans really excited about the kind of player that he's going to grow into as he gets stronger, as he gets more experience. He's going to be a captain this week in Provo. That's really cool. And you know, Adam, another offensive lineman that I thought played really well. He, too, is a captain uh, when Oklahoma goes up to Provo this weekend. And, Adam, I think this is the first time in a long time, maybe ever, that OU will have a true freshman as a game captain, and that's Caden Green, who I thought played yeah. really well at the left guard position on, on Saturday night. You can see that the game is starting to slow down for him a little bit. He's getting more comfortable in this Bill Beanbow uh, offensive line scheme and uh, again, he was mauling guys in the running game. I sent you the clip of the one play where he pretty much just threw the guy over his shoulder and moved on to the next guy. So he was really good. And then, of course, you got to give Kate, uh, McCain Matower his flowers uh, and the love that he deserves. Obviously, um, it, it's never good when a player gets ejected, thrown out of a game. But in a situation like that, I have absolutely no problem with that what's you know whatsoever. Um, you know, obviously West Virginia they laid a pretty good hit on uh, on Drake Stoops in the end zone. Drake actually ended up ke- completing the catch and scoring a touchdown. I'm not sure why you're standing over a, gore- a guy that just scored on you, but uh, McCade Matower standing up for his guys, him and Dylan Gabriel. Uh, so I have absolutely no issue with that what- whatsoever. That's showing fight for your team, showing fight for your uh, your brother. So you know, huge shout out to McCade Matower. Uh, got a little fist bump from El Prez uh, in Norman down on the sideline as he departed. Love it. We got a great question on Twitter from Chicago sports fan. I thought it was perfect for the podcast kind of mm-hmm. discuss defensively for this, pro, uh, for this team. And if you're out there listening and you want us to discuss something, this is a listener you know, driven show. So let us know if you have questions or topics you want us to, to cover here. But Chicago sports fan says, uh, should we be concerned the defense hasn't gotten any sacks the last two games? Over 70 pass attempts between OSU and the West Virginia game. No sacks, some okay pressure, but but no sacks so far. What do you think, Tyler? 
I mean, may, maybe to an extent, I think you could possibly make the argument. I mean, just looking at their performance against West Virginia, yes, they didn't have any sacks, but this was, you know, one of the most mobile quarterbacks maybe outside of Jason Bean in this conference in Garrett Green. But, you know, even though they weren't able to, you know, get to him in the in the uh, in sack him in the backfield, they still had eight tackles for loss as a, as a defense on Saturday. They affected the game outside of the first drive, Adam, where you know West Virginia pretty much did anything they wanted to with ease on that first drive of the game to put them up seven, nothing, you know, we were kind of thinking, Oh God, it's going to be one of those type of nights in Norman. But after that first, first drive, they got together. They, you know, they made some adjustments. And from that point forward, they dictated the way that the game was played. They made West Virginia uncomfortable offensively all night after that first possession. And, you know, Adam, what, a, what a difference it, it makes having Danny Stutzman back. Um, we, we can touch on that here in a second, but are you concerned uh, with the fact that Oklahoma hasn't had any sacks in the last two weeks? Um, I mean, definitely against West Virginia. I know Garrett Green's a very mobile guy, but I didn't see him escaping pressure a ton necessarily mm-hmm. as far as, oh, he's just normally anybody else would get sacked there. Uh, it is a little bit concerning because you were able to make West Virginia somewhat one-dimensional because, oh, you got up so big so quick. And so West Virginia was able to do some things on the ground, but it was kind of like, well, if, if you want to do that, do that. <laughs> like, yeah, you'll run a lot of clock and it'll take you forever to get down the field. If you want to run the ball, um, you're going to have to pass. I know you really was able to shut down that passing game mm-hmm. uh, under 50% completion percentage for Garrett Green. So um, there's, there's some pressure. There needs to be a lot more. There needs to be some more sacks in my opinion. So it's a concern, but I would call it more of like a, a mild concern just because yeah. I know I know what this unit has. I know they've got a lot of guys that are, that are, are nice. Um, we're in the process of changing over that room, but I would say it's just a mild concern at this point. Well, after that first drive, Adam, that you know West Virginia did whatever they wanted to offensively, took the 7-0 lead, Oklahoma held them to, to 13 points for the remaining 56 minutes of the game. So I thought they did a really good job controlling the line of scrimmage, you know, limiting the Mountaineer running game, especially for Garrett Green. They held him to just 30 yards of rushing all game long. If anybody that wa- remembers that uh, OU West Virginia game in Morgantown last year, the, the legs of Garrett Green were just simply Oklahoma had no answer for it. He tore him up all game long. Uh, and Garrett Green, Adam, 10 of 27 passing. So huge shout-out to this Oklahoma secondary, playing tight coverage on the back end. But that also, uh, also that Oklahoma front seven, getting after that offensive line, forcing Garrett Green to do what I don't think he's truly built for, and that's completing passes from inside the pocket. We talked about Danny Stutzman, Adam. What a difference it makes when he's healthy and back in the lineup. He led the team in tackles. Did a really get, great job getting the uh, getting the calls in, getting everybody lined up right. That's something that I think we saw Oklahoma's defense struggle with the last two weeks where Danny was out, so in his absence. Um, but I thought that Kip Lewis getting the start at, uh, at the other linebacker position was awesome. He might be, Adam. I know it was Peyton Bowen earlier in the season. He's obviously had some growing pains, and you know he's been fighting some some injury bugs as well. Kip Lewis might be my favorite player to watch on defense because this dude is all over the place making plays. And Adam, the most impressive things that, to me when I when I look at how Kip Lewis plays the game the last two weeks, he's doing all this as a redshirt freshman, number one, but he's also playing at 205 to 210 pounds. What's this kid going to look like uh, in the next one to two years when he's 15 to 20 pounds heavier? He's still arguably playing at the same speed with his hair on fire. If they can get Danny to come back next year, you've got arguably one of the best linebacking cores in the country for year one in the SEC. 
watching Kip is pretty fun, especially on film review, because you yeah. see him make the tackle and you're like, well, where did this guy come from? And then you rewind a little bit and a little bit and a little bit. And it's like, man, he came from all the way over there. That's, mm-hmm. that's insane. How did he yep. see that? How did he get there? He just, he finds a way. Um, it is fun to watch. And um, yeah, there's a ton of depth, a lot of young linebackers that are, are super exciting there. So can't wait to, to see that room continue to grow, mm-hmm. uh, not just this year, because there's still a lot of time left. You know, you got two more weeks in the regular season. You might have a Big 12 championship appearance um, in the bowl game. So a lot of time for these guys to grow and continue to build the momentum and excitement going into 2024 there. Anything else on the defensive side of the ball? to put a cap on West Virginia? No, I think it was just a really good performance uh, altogether. You could tell that this defense, they fed off the crowd. Um, Obviously, I was not in attendance, Adam, you were, but even just listening to the stadium noise through the TV, you could tell that it was a good good atmosphere, Norman. The weather was great. People, I thought, coming into this game, I was a little uncertain about the atmosphere that we were going to get. Obviously, this team, you know, coming off of two consecutive losses, college football playoff hopes are, are out the door. You know, it's really kind of a toss-up as far as what the path to the Big 12 championship is. We'll get to that in a minute because I don't think anybody truly knows what's going on, maybe outside of you. I know that Brett Yormark and the Big 12 have absolutely no idea what's going on, how this conference is getting ran as a whole especially. Um, but, but yeah, I thought that the defense played really well. The fact that you had 27 different players record a tackle uh, on Saturday night, you saw a lot of the young guys, some of the true freshmen, some of the second-year guys getting some good snaps. Jacoby Johnson recording his first uh, you know, career interception at Oklahoma. That was a lot of fun to see. Um, but, yeah, I, I just think that all in all, it was a really good performance. It was the most complete game that we've seen from Oklahoma, and you just hope that, one, not only does this give them an opportunity to kind of get the ship, you know, get the ship right uh, and get it back on course. But now this gives you some momentum to where you can go into these final two games, this closing stretch of the season against two really inferior opponents. We'll touch on BYU here in a second. But um, if Oklahoma plays like the way that they did on Saturday night, if they can keep that same attitude, that same aggression and level of physicality, uh, Oklahoma should uh, it should be a nice two weeks for OU fans here as we close out the regular season. Big 12 Championship is a little more than two weeks away. Oh, boy. OU still has a path to Arlington, but they're going to need some help. Obviously, OU lost their two games, so you can have that conversation around, well, OU should have won those games. It is what it is. It's fun to talk about, though, the different scenarios that OU could end up playing for Big 12 Championship still. And they got some help a week ago. They they did get some help a week ago with, with Oklahoma State taking a loss there at UCF. Let's take a look at some of the scenarios, though. And I will preface this by saying... I don't think I fully understand all the tiebreakers. I'm doing this to the best of our ability here of trying to explain this. I don't think the Big 12 knows what the tiebreakers are as they come out and say, oh, let's clarify. And I think they're kind of making things up. And I think this is probably something that fans of these super conferences probably will come to expect some strange tiebreaker scenarios here in the future. And I bet the Big 10 and the SEC and well, I guess the Pac-12 won't be around, but the ACC are probably scrambling to figure out, hey, do our tiebreakers look super clear? Uh, because the Big 12 is going through a situation here. So this will probably be something that will happen frequently in these bigger conferences without the divisions that make it super easy there. So let's take a look at some Big 12 title scenarios. To the best of our ability, here's what we think is going to happen if OU is, or is going to have to happen if OU makes it to Arlington. So we'll dive into each of these, and then I've got a few little breakdowns here on each of these, though. Preface it, First Adam, scenario. Preface it, Adam, by saying Oklahoma has to win out. You got to go two and zero for Obviously. any of this stuff to happen. Yeah, there may be some weirdo situation where a bunch of teams can tie at six and three, but let's not even entertain that. So, scenario one: Iowa State beats Texas 
chalk the rest of the way scenario, you know, Oklahoma State wins out, so on and so forth. That, according to the tiebreakers, would give you Oklahoma versus Kansas State in the Big 12 title game. Now, in this scenario, there would be a four-way tie between Oklahoma, between Kansas State, between OSU and Texas. Now, the, to my understanding of this, OU would, would win the tiebreaker and Kansas State would win the tiebreaker. Now, I know there are some – the clarification that came out today was, hey, if OU, Kansas State, and Oklahoma State are in a tiebreaker, Oklahoma State would be favored in that scenario. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in a four-way tie, that's totally different there. So to my understanding, Oklahoma versus K-State would be the matchup here. I think that's kind of the one we all have our minds on, though, is that Iowa State could beat Texas. It's up in Ames. It's a night game. It feels like that's probably the best chance of, of something happening here. Yeah, and, and the fact that Texas has lost three of their last four trips up to Ames, Iowa. It's a night game. Jack Tri Stadium, it's going to be rocking. Those people are going to be juiced up. You would think that the, the most simplistic path for Oklahoma to get back to Arlington, that that's the, that's the domino that has to fall. Iowa State has got to beat Texas on Saturday night in Ames because really after that, you know, the, the only remaining game for the Longhorns is a uh, Thanksgiving night game uh, against Texas Tech that I really don't have too much confidence in the Red Raiders to be able to go in there and do that uh, unless Texas just pulls a Texas and just simply screws it up and, and chokes. Uh, but yeah, if Iowa State uh, can, can do what they do uh, and take care of business on Saturday night, that's the easiest path for Oklahoma to find their way back to Arlington. Another really easy path is scenario two here. Oklahoma State loses to either Houston or BYU. That would produce a Red River rivalry, a Red River shootout for uh, the OGs uh, rematch there in Arlington. Basically, that would create a tiebreaker scenario where OU would own the tiebreaker over Kansas State uh, because they would have already beaten Texas. uh, And then they would hold the tiebreaker as head-to-head matchup over Iowa State. So that could be also pretty easy there. I don't... I feel like Oklahoma State could lose to Houston. That game's on the road. I think Houston's good enough to play a one-possession game with Oklahoma State. Mm-hmm. BYU, we're going to talk about a little bit later on the podcast. I don't see them uh, losing no. to uh, to BYU in Stillwater. So no. <laughs> I think that's kind of our, our, our best-case scenario there if we're looking at this one as being the option. Yeah, 100%. I mean, we we kind of got a gift, uh, an early Christmas present thrown to us with Oklahoma State getting blown out in Orlando last weekend. That was a good domino for it to fall in, in Oklahoma's favor. But yeah, you look at the last two opponents that the Pokes have on their schedule. The trip to Houston, yes, that is going to be a little bit of a you know, I wouldn't say that that's going to be a heavy road, a tough road environment, but Houston does play much better at home. We all remember the Texas game went down to the final wire. It took a just a brutal bad spot by the Big 12 officials to essentially give Texas that game uh, and you know, they're able to escape out of uh, out of H-Town with the, with the win. But yeah, uh, I think that that's probably not too likely of a scenario, Adam. Third scenario here is that Iowa State wins out. They beat both Texas and Kansas State. Uh, that would create a four-way tie between Oklahoma State, between OU, Texas, and Iowa State. And the way it's uh, written right now basically would be that OU would play a rematch in Bedlam uh, of Bedlam in Arlington there. So mm-hmm. I think that's probably the one that OU fans really want to happen. I think that would be very tough, though, for Iowa State to beat both of those teams. I could see them winning one of two, but going 2-0 there would be uh, certainly a challenge for the Cyclones, despite them playing very good football right now. 
Yeah, if Iowa State can figure out a way to knock off Texas at home this weekend, you've got to follow that up with a trip up to Manhattan to take on a really, really good K-State team. Chris Kleiman doing another fantastic job time and time again. Feels like we're getting uh, – it just rolls off the tongue. We're, uh, that's just a habit of a uh, of a phrase to use. But, Adam, I do, I do want to point out one last thing before you get to this final, uh, th- this final scenario here. Let's not forget – you know, all the all of the focus for, for OU fans and a lot of the Big 12 media is talking about Texas going to Ames this upcoming weekend. But K-State's got a sneaky, tough trip to Lawrence this weekend. Yeah. I, I'm not saying that that's a sure thing whatsoever. You might feel a little bit differently looking at your betting card that we'll touch on here in a little bit. But, yeah, K-State goes into Lawrence this weekend. Anything is possible. If Kansas can knock off K-State, um, then that, that's just a cherry on top, and that just kind of throws another – not, maybe not another wrench into things, but if Oklahoma is able to win out, that path does get a little bit easier because obviously uh, K-State and Kansas would now have three conference losses together. Yeah, and there are some scenarios there where Iowa State wins out and then it's OU versus Iowa State. That would likely include an Oklahoma State loss, um, but just for simplicity of things, uh, went with what would be the uh, scenario there if you went chalk uh, otherwise uh, – in addition to Iowa State winning out. Yeah. Scenario number four here is Iowa State beats Kansas State but loses to Texas, and then Texas Tech beats Texas. Now, mm. you would think that if Iowa State beats Texas and OU gets in, that it would also be the same if Texas Tech beats Texas, then OU would be in. That's not necessarily the case. OU would lose tiebreakers in that scenario. So in order for OU to get in with a Texas Tech win over Texas – then you would also need Iowa State to beat Kansas State and knock them out of the tiebreaker scenarios there. That would produce a rematch again of the Red River shootout in Arlington. So OU versus Texas is probably the most likely scenario if we do, if OU does indeed get their way through all these tiebreakers and navigate everything and, and get back. So it looks like Texas would be the most likely there. But that would, of course, involve two different teams making upsets there against uh, Texas and Kansas. Yeah, two road underdogs uh, having to win to, to force that yep. scenario. Yeah, that's probably the most unlikely of the four options that we discussed. Adam, Put all your cards on the table right here. What would be the matchup? If, if Oklahoma does find their way to Arlington, who's the team that you want to see on the other sideline? I think it's oh, blatantly it's off. It's, it's Bedlam, 100% no Bedlam. <laughs> and I can promise you, I know that we've got some Oklahoma State fans listening to this, Oklahoma State would be thrilled to be in that game. But if you but if you, if you put some true serum in their coffee or whatever the fuck they drink up there in Stillwater, <laughs> they do not want to see OU in a rematch in Arlington. With the game on the oh, line, yeah. That, that would be must-see TV, and uh, they they just simply thought that they had the bragging rights going out the door. Now Oklahoma would have an opportunity to avenge that loss, win the Big 12 championship trophy, give the middle finger to Brett Yormark over to Mike Gundy and the, uh, the, the people up there in Stillwater. That would be the best-case matchup for me, and I hope we see it happen. Yeah, and, and again, OU needs to win out, so that scenario needs to play out. I know not the best teams in BYU and TCU, but for those watching on YouTube, definitely comment. Let us know if you think uh, how, like how confident you are in OU winning out there. But uh, yeah, I agree. I think Bedlam's the one that probably makes the most sense. I think Iowa State getting a matchup there would, would mm-hmm. favor OU again. I just think they wouldn't be able to keep up with the Sooners. But those are kind of the scenarios there. And again, it's all subject to change. I put the asterisk on there for those watching on YouTube. It's at the whim and mercy of the Big 12 of however they interpret uh, these these tiebreaker scenarios and the verbiage in the rules there it doesn't make any sense and tiebreakers should not be up to interpretation it should no. be 
incredibly clear. There should be only one way to interpret it. And well, um, grammar is important. Like there's a grammar error on one of those tiebreakers. Commas that are just key, makes it Adam. Yeah. <laughs> commas are key. Well, let's go back to uh, let's go back to kindergarten and first grade here. One, one last thing to put a bow on the, on this segment, Adam. This segment could be completely outdated. In the, in the next, you know, 16 to 18 hours, because supposedly the Big 12 is going to be on a conference call tomorrow with the athletic directors of every program in this conference to go over the clarification of, of how the rules should be interpreted in terms of Big 12 championship scenarios. So we'll see if anything comes out of that tomorrow morning that can give us a little bit more clarity. But like we said, after the West Virginia game on uh, on Saturday night, with when there when there's two when there's two weeks left in the season, we can you know it's a lot of fun. Obviously, something like this happens; it's doing what it's exactly intended to do. We're talking about it on a Tuesday, but let's let's let all the games play out this upcoming weekend. Oklahoma takes care of business against BYU. Then, after the dust settles, we'll have a much clearer picture of what has to happen the following Friday and Saturday, uh, and even Thursday for the uh, the game down in Austin for Oklahoma to find their way back down to Arlington. Uh, to compete for the Big 12 title. Last time that OU played Texas in the Big 12 title in 2018, OU broke out the alternate uniforms. Yep. They they may have done that. I don't know if they did that the following year against Baylor, but no. New some new threads potentially that OU could utilize in that scenario. The anthracites, we saw those on Saturday against West Virginia. They look good. I think they need a little bit of tweaking. They're a little bit too shiny, a little too hard to read the numbers still, but I, I like the anthracites with the crimson. I think it's a good look. It just needs a little bit of a, yeah. a little an upgrade, and I think it'll be almost perfect. But do you think OU might break those out again if they make the Big 12 title game? I don't think so. I, I wouldn't think no. so. If, it, if, it, if it's OU Tex, if it's OU Bedlam, or if it's K-State, just simply go with the traditional home or away. In my opinion, I'm not a huge fan of alternate uniforms. I think that when you're in a, at a program like Oklahoma, you're a blue, blue blood. There's so much tradition and pageantry behind your program. You've got one of the best home and away uniform combinations in the entire sport. Stick with what's good. Stick with what you know. Keep those road whites and the, uh, and the crimson homes. So the way I'm interpreting this is, oh, you should wear the traditional uniforms, the uh, the recognizable brand. And I, I'm thinking the fans should probably do the same. I uh, got a shameless plug for Red and West, our sponsor here at the Mainline <laughs> Podcast. Um, they've got some cool retro gear. They've got a lot of Barry Switzer polos. They've got some of those uh, disco OU logo polos. They've got some of the great uh, visors as well. So uh, definitely check out redandwest.com. Some great gifts this time of year too. Um, if you got other fans uh, in your family, OSU, Texas Tech, SMU, so on and so forth. They got a lot of teams out there. Uh, check them out, redandwest.com. We greatly appreciate uh, them sponsoring the show. Tyler, I guess it's time to chat a little bit about some things that are happening in the bigger college football scene. Uh, really none bigger than A&M firing Jimbo Fisher, which means that there's a gold mine of talent in College Station that could be up for the pickings at this point. Now, mm-hmm. I've seen some posts over at crimsoncaptain.com. I put a link in the show notes in the description if you want to check that out. But he's reported for well over a month before this Jimbo Fisher uh, firing happened that there could be some names that could come back into play. In fact, he put an interesting, a really interesting name in uh, his Discord the other day. Mm-hmm. I won't spoil it so people can go check that out there. But a name that maybe didn't, come to mind as like the top name that I would have thought uh, that could be interested in OU. Mm-hmm. So that one was kind of intriguing, but a lot of names on this A&M roster. I just want to ask real quick, and we won't spend a whole lot of time here, but maybe like top one or two, maybe three guys that you think would be most likely to consider a transfer to OU, whether it be 
guys currently there or guys that could change their commitment out of high school? I'll give you three guys that are currently on the roster right now, and I'll give you one recruit, uh, obviously, that Oklahoma was in contention for. And this kind of goes back to the play, Adam, where even when the recruit doesn't commit to you straight out of high school, they don't make you the first stop on their college uh, career path, you never burn that bridge. You always make sure that you've got a good, solid relationship with this team because, uh, be, with this kid and, w- and with their families, because the transfer portal, Adam, it's you know, it's it's been a game changer across the sport of college football, allowing programs to be able to reshuffle their roster, be able to really upgrade at some key positions that can you know really kind of jumps uh, jumpstart them going into the next year. Uh, I, for me, Adam, I'll start with the high school kid. For me, this is an absolute no brainer. No, it's not Dominic McKinley. I'm going to go Terry Bussey here. When you watch this kid's film, you turn on the highlights. Some some athletes, Adam, are just simply so gifted with the ball in their hands that all you need to do is figure out a way to either pitch it to them, throw it to them, or hand it off and let them do the rest. Bussey is this kind of kid, this kind of playmaker. If Oklahoma and Emmett Jones can sprinkle a little bit of magic on this one, uh, ultimately with the fallout of Jimbo Fisher, and I'm really not even going to call it a fallout. The, the guy's going to make you know almost $80 million to just simply sit on the sidelines. Sign me up for that any day of the week. Uh, but yeah, Terry Bussey's the is the uh, recruit in the 2024 class that I would absolutely love to have. And then for me, the three guys that are currently on the roster that Oklahoma would I would pay huge dividends to see these guys make the transition from College Station up to Norman. It's the three big guys on the defensive line. It's David Hicks, it's Gabriel uh, Brownlow Dindy, and it's Walter Nolan. You've got two freshmen and you've got a sophomore guys with multiple years of eligibility. Uh, I'm not too familiar with how how big of a relationship Walter Nolan has with, with Oklahoma. He's ultimately, you know, in his second year at Texas A&M. Um, so kind of feels like Alex Grinch, Lincoln Riley, that would have been the uh, the coaching uh, administration that would have kind of, you know, been in Norman during that recruitment when it played out. Uh, he would be a pipe dream. But David Hicks and Gabriel Brownlow-Dindy are both players in which um, Todd Bates – uh, Brent Venables and Ted Roof have good relationship. They've got the rapport with these guys. So give me the big boys in the middle on the line of scrimmage. Feels like OU's had so many connections to Texas A&M players, whether it be just finishing second in their recruiting race, or maybe a guy like um, like LT Overton that has mm-hmm. a connection to OU through family uh, ties. And in, in, uh, I think it was maybe his mom that's an OU alum. Yeah. I may have that a little bit wrong, but I think I believe that's correct. But just so many guys like that where it's like, Man, they just—if these guys ended up at OU, like they'll go pro at A&M. They're good players. They may sure. not have all the production. They may not be all Americans or win Heisman's. Um, you know, they—they'll—they'll they'll be good at A&M. A&M just doesn't win. But it's like, man, they could do that and win at OU. So frustrating. But we'll see if uh, maybe the door is open there. I know well, that people will say, oh, the the checks are clearing and they're getting paid a ton at A&M. Well, I think OU would pay any of those guys a ton as well. So really just depends on like, hey, who the new coach is. Can OU wedge into that relationship mm-hmm. and start moving that train downhill before a new coach comes in and starts building excitement uh, around the program. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Adam, let's talk some college football playoff talk here. We'll be real quick in this segment, but I thought this is, this was a really good question because obviously college football playoff, the new set of rankings are going to be revealed tonight. And there's so much chalk, so much debate about, uh, will you, do you base this off of strength of schedule? Who's got the best record? Do you focus on the eye test? Is it logos? Is it brands? But Adam, as we sit here on November 14th, who are the four best teams in college football? Not the most deserving, not the best resume, but in your opinion, who are the four best teams in college football right now? I think I'd have to go Georgia, Bama, 
and not necessarily in this order, but Georgia, Bama, Michigan. And then it becomes a very interesting conversation between Ohio State, Florida State, Oregon. I think I would go Ohio State. Mm-hmm. Now, we do believe that the winner of Ohio State, Michigan, will, will take that's that in. playoff spot. And then that's the loser a- will be out, which makes sense. I think that's fair. Could be. Right? Yeah. Then it comes down to Oregon or Washington. <laughs> I totally left Washington out. They're still undefeated, but mm-hmm. I think the consensus is that people think War- Oregon will win the rematch on a neutral field, uh, which I think is fair. I think they're the more complete team. I would agree with and that. And then Florida State. Now, Florida State hasn't looked the best uh, lately. They haven't played too many good teams lately, mm-hmm. but they've kind of scraped by a little bit. Nothing too crazy, but they just haven't been super, super dominant either. Texas I feel like Florida is, State's about yeah. to be upset. I just, I mean, I know they played North Alabama this weekend, and then they finished with Florida and probably Louisville in the ACC championship game. Yeah, so not a ton of competition there. But I don't know. I don't, it I don't is, it is interesting though, and I'm in agreement with you. I think the four best teams in the country are Georgia, Michigan State, Ohio, or Michigan, not not Michigan State. I apologize. Georgia, Michigan, <laughs> Ohio State, and Alabama. And if I had to, if I had to name the next four, in my opinion, I'd have Oregon at five, Florida State at six, Washington at seven, and Texas at eight. And I know a lot of people are. There's been a lot of you know good conversation, a lot of debate about Texas and where they kind of fit into this because Alabama's kind of found their footing, and you know Tommy Reese has done an, a, a one hell of a job uh, being able to kind of cater. Uh, this Alabama offense being able to tweak it to fit Jalen Milrow's skill set. And this this guy, from where he was in the Texas game all the way back in the beginning of September to where Jalen Milrow, the brand of football and how well he's playing at this point in the season, it's night and day difference. So I'm just telling you, Michigan, Ohio State, winner that, that's going to the college football playoff. That game essentially in two weeks is a college football playoff quarterfinal. Uh, Georgia versus Alabama. What are you going to do, Adam? What does the college football playoff committee do Say Alabama knocks off Georgia. Alabama's going to the college football playoff, right? Yeah, I would think so. I'm looking at Texas's schedule right now, and I'm trying to determine what their next best win is after beating Bama. Three-point win over TCU. Three-point win over K-State at home. I know they didn't have Quinn Ewers for that yeah. one. I, I, let, me, let, me just, let me just speculate here, Adam. Washington wins out. You've got their undefeated Pac-12 champion. Florida State runs the table undefeated ACC champion. Those two teams are definitely in. Say yeah. say say Georgia or excuse me, say Alabama beats Georgia. You got a one loss Alabama, then you've got I think Georgia's out, right? Think Georgia's I mean, out? Would you put they, Georgia they lost, in not a strong schedule? Would you put Georgia in over a one loss Texas? Would you Texas put Texas is a Big 12 champion in that scenario? I think you'd have to put Texas in over one loss Georgia, if that's what it comes down to. Now, I, I do think, and I say this every year, like it'll take care of itself. The doors will open. Mm-hmm. Lots of teams get upset. Now, so far, like I think they said this is the most undefeated teams, Power 5, that had made it this far in the season in a yeah. really long time. So maybe this is a year that doesn't prove out. But, man, Washington, I feel like, has been living dangerously. I think Florida State's been living dangerously. Mm-hmm. I think Texas has been living dangerously. Obviously, Ohio State, Michigan, the loser of that gets knocked out. I don't really think Bama will beat Georgia. So I feel like it'll take care of itself, um, but we'll see. It's going to be a lot of fun to watch. And I feel like we do this every single year as the college football playoff rankings come out throughout the regular season. We try to find these that we try to find the answers to these scenarios that ultimately end up working themselves out. So, uh, but it's, it's good banter. It's a lot of fun to talk about it. Adam, 
a team that's not going to the playoff. BYU. God. <laughs> yeah, let's let, no. So they started the year off 3-0 in non-conference, Adam. They had a nice win on the road at, at Arkansas. Then once Big 12 play started, things got a little sideways for them up at Provo. They're 5-5 five and five overall on the year. They're just 2-5 and five in Big 12 play, but they, they do have wins over Cincinnati and Texas Tech. But you look at some of the common opponents that they have with Oklahoma this year. They, be, they beat Cincinnati by 8. Good, congrats. Cincinnati's one of the worst teams in the Power 5. Uh, but they lost to Texas by 29. They got beat by West Virginia by 30. They got housed at home a week ago against Iowa State. They got beat by 32. And Adam, here's the, here's a crazy stat for you: the last three ball games for BYU, they've been outscored 117 to 26. So this is a pretty sizable mismatch if you're Oklahoma. But if you look at it that way. That's where it gets you beat. You have no margin for error if you're Oklahoma uh, going into Provo this upcoming weekend. You cannot take this team lightly. Uh, you've lost your last two games on the road, yet you still have a chance to play for a Big 12 championship. So uh, it's it's going to be an interesting road trip. Obviously, the 10 a.m. kickoff, um, this, is a, this will be the first true road game. I'm not going to consider OU Texas one. This will be the first true road game, Adam, where uh, the main line is going to be together. Uh, up in Provo this weekend. What what are, what are you heading up? Uh, I actually fly out tomorrow morning on Wednesday, so Make we're spending a couple of days there. Okay, yeah. okay. Where do you we're, are we're seeing the lay of the land um, of uh, Salt Lake City primarily? Okay. Um, but I think I'm going to go up to Logan. I think I'm I'm going to try to go to the stadium for Utah State. I'm going to go to Utah, get a stadium picture there, and then uh, round it out the weekend at BYU. Just adding and to the collection. Adding to the collection. I need to go check like what numbers. I think I'm on like Stadium 33, something like that. I'm okay. um, just trying to get to as many stadiums as I can, game day yeah. or non-game day, um, and, and get the collection there. BYU, a team that, God. you know, up until a week ago, I would have said, oh, they're they're doing okay at home. Uh, not great on the road, but at least they're doing okay at home. And then Iowa State just houses them. Now, BYU, I don't think has played an 11 a.m. game all year, regardless of being on the road. Uh, I, they never play 11 or 10 a.m. games <laughs> local time there. So, We'll see how that affects them. But yeah. this team just devoid of talent, really. You know, you've got Keaton Slovis, who is battling some injuries. He was available last week in an emergency situation for the Cougars. Didn't play. We'll see if he gets the start on Saturday. I don't think it matters all that much. Um, certainly helps OU if the backup Jake Retzlaff plays there. Uh, but I don't think it matters either way too much no. because BYU is an offense. They, they can't run the ball. They're, I think, 124th in the country yeah, in rushing, less than 100 yards rushing per game. It's not like they're playing the best defenses in the world mm-hmm. either. So nothing impressive there from a passing perspective. Uh, Chase Roberts is their, is their leader. He's got 525 yards, four, four touchdowns, touchdowns. Two, two kids, one mortgage. And he's just like, there's just not a lot of dynamic playmakers here on offense. So while you could make the case that, yeah, OU probably could shoot themselves in the foot because we've definitely seen that. I don't know if BYU can truly take advantage of that because they just can't do the fundamentals really. And they're, they're in an adjustment period coming into this, this big 12 conference. Here's, here's the one thing that I will say, Adam, and then I'll dive into the numbers a little bit. We obviously were coming off of a game in which I thought that was Jeff Levy's best game that he's called all season long. It was one of Dylan Gabriel's best performances. The offensive line is figuring it out. Gavin saw check another 120 yard plus game. Let me just say this. If Oklahoma plays as aggressive and as efficient as they did on Saturday, they can score 60, maybe even 70 on this BYU defense because I think it's that bad. And we'll just start with Oklahoma. We'll just start with the BYU offense here, ranked dead last in the Big 12 in scoring, just a hair over 21 points a game. 
They're dead last in the Big 12 in total yards, averaging just, I actually think it's 300 yards on the dot per game, 209 through the air, 91 on the ground uh, rushing average. They're ranked dead last in the Big 12 in third down conversions. That's the money down. That's where your bread's buttered. That's what gets you on and off the field. They're sitting at 27% on the year uh, in third down conversion percentage. And I know Brent talked about it in his press conference a little bit earlier today. They've been banged up the last couple of weeks at the quarterback and wide receiver positions. But we heard from Brent today and some of the rumblings coming out of Provo that they're going to get those guys back this week. And, of course, they are. Oklahoma's coming into town. They're going to be at full strength. But uh, Keen Slovis, you've seen him in a, in a, in a couple different uniforms throughout, the, uh, throughout his collegiate career. Not super impressive. 12 touchdown to six interceptions. That two-to-one ratio is not good for a Division One quarterback at the Power 5 level. They do have a talented freshman running back, though, Adam. Uh, Six-foot-two, 205-pound freshman out of El Paso, Texas. Number 27, LJ Martin. He's averaging just a hair under five yards a carry uh, this season. Good, tough, physical running back that does have some breakaway speed if you can't get him uh, can't get him down and he's able to get into the second level. The wide receiver position, you alluded to Chase Roberts. Number five, Darius Lassiter uh, is another good one, Adam. The big thing for me, they're not the most athletic guys in the world, but they do have good size and stature. Both guys, one's at 6'4", 210, the other at 6'3", 205. So, uh, Put your big boy pants on, OU Corners. So we don't really know the status on Gentry Williams this week. Kind of feels like probably going to hold him out at least one more week. We'll see as uh, how he progresses as the week goes on. But the tight end matchup will be one that I'll be interested to watch how OU's cheetah position. Uh, obviously, we think that Desan's going to be back this week. Kendall Dolby has you know, kind of made uh, a name for himself, uh, kind of switching with, with uh, him and Desan. Sammy Omasigo is a guy that we saw play some good snaps a week ago. He had a couple of tackles against the Mountaineers. But um, for me, Adam, the offensive line – I'm going to highlight one guy here that when you watch the tape, you look at the measurables, you look at the stats, this guy's got a future on Sundays playing in the NFL, and that is number 78, the left tackle, Kingsley. going to try and pronounce his last name, Suamataia. And I think I did that right. Six foot, six, six, 325 pounds. But Adam, you look at this offensive line collectively, they've given up 18 sacks this year. And when you turn on the tape and you watch BYU's O-line play, I see a group that's slow. I see a group that is not athletic whatsoever and is very inconsistent, especially in pass protection. I watched a good bit uh, of the Texas game when they played down in Austin. I watched a really uh, almost the entire uh, Iowa State game up in uh, Provo this past weekend, and they just simply cannot block. They cannot give their quarterback any time whatsoever. Finding, uh, uh, creating run gaps uh, for their for their backs to get through is is something that's really kind of plagued them all season long. And you know, Adam. This is just a not. This is just not a good offense whatsoever. If Oklahoma uh, does what they do and they execute, and they keep their skis, you know, they keep their skis underneath them, and they play good, clean, aggressive football. I don't see this team scoring more than 13, 13 points, maybe fourteen. You mentioned the left tackle, who's an NFL prospect, and we yeah. know the names in the NFL like Zach Wilson or Tyler Algier or Puka Nakua uh, with the Rams. There, yeah, plenty of guys that have come through BYU and are now sure. in the NFL, but they just don't they don't have any of those guys on this no. roster from no. from what I've been able to see. So I, I think that they'll improve and they'll be competitive in the Big Twelve, but not not this year, unfortunately. So really, it just comes down to what OU team shows up. Do we get the team that shoots themselves in the foot and? Uh, creates a lot of turnovers, really what we call giveaways, not takeaways mm-hmm. uh, for BYU to potentially capitalize on. And even then, I'm not sure that that's going to be enough for BYU to pull an upset here. But 
Um, if we get the focus team that was there playing West Virginia last week, um, oh, you should be able to dominate here um, yeah. on both sides of the ball. We yeah. haven't talked much about about their defense. Do you have any any insights on on the defense from the Cougars that you want to highlight? Kind of same song, different verse, Adam. This is a defense that's kind of middle of the pack in the Big 12. They're giving up a hair over 28 points per game, 414 total yards a game. That's second to last in the Big 12. They're ranked 13th in the conference in stopping the run. Opponents are actually averaging over 180 yards on the ground against them. So um, I talked about how how terrible they are offensively and getting off the field on third downs. Uh, you flip it over to the defensive side of the football, they're ranked second to last in the Big 12 in third down conversions with opponents converting at a rate of 45%. So uh, we, when you look, at the, you look at the roster, you turn on the film, you watch the way that these guys play and you know kind of how they stack up. They've got some size up front. I think that they've got four dudes that are at 300 pounds or more, but they're just not very athletic when they come off the ball. There's, there's not too the the footwork isn't very good. There's not too much, uh, there's not too much speed, quickness, agility. They don't do a very good job of playing with their hands. I think that this will be an opportunity where Oklahoma's offensive line they can lock up on these guys, and whether it's you know moving them off the ball in the running game or. Uh, you know, dropping back in pass protection. I really don't see anything that this BYU defense has, even from an edge rusher position that's going to give Oklahoma fits on Saturday, no matter who's playing tackle uh, for the Sooners, whether it's Guyton, Sexton, Rouse. Uh, I, I would feel very comfortable and confident that any of those three guys are going to be able to have a really solid game. And then, Adam, you you flip it over to the back end of this defense. You look at uh, this BYU secondary. Most of their players, I've got them listed down here, five foot 10, 190. Five foot 11, 190. They've got a six foot guy that's about 170 pounds uh, in Jacob Robinson, number zero, I believe. He's actually their best defensive back. He's got four interceptions on the year. But when you look at some of the guys that Oklahoma's got out on the perimeter, uh, when you've got a six foot four Nick Anderson, six five Jaden Gibson, Austin Stogner, big guy, big guy over the middle of the field, combine that with the, you know, the elite precise route running that Drake Stoops presents you and, and obviously Jalil Farouk. For me, if I'm Oklahoma's offense on Saturday, go out there. It's not so much about what is BYU going to do, how are they going to line up to try to offset what you're trying to do. Go up there, run your offense, execute at a high level, keep the penalties penalties down, don't turn the football over. And for me, it's name your score. I think Oklahoma is going to be able to do whatever they want on Saturday, both running the football. I think that this will be a 250-yard – or let me rephrase that. This should be – a 250-yard rushing game from Oklahoma. Gavin Sawchuk's building on a fantastic back half of the season. Tawi Walker, we'll see if he if he's better. You know, coming into his third week off of that ankle sprain uh, against Kansas. Um, but yeah, just line up and go. It's not about what BYU can do to you on Saturday. It's about Oklahoma's execution, and uh, I expect a good performance from Jeff Levy's crew again. Should be cold and rainy there in Provo on Saturday. We'll see if that forecast changes, but yeah. uh, that makes me a little nervous. Uh, hopefully we see a second good performance out of Jeff Lubby. I think Oklahoma State was pretty pretty good. West Virginia was even better. Mm -hmm. um, so it really does just come down to execute. And can we see the same offense twice in this? Yeah, and, and Adam, totally Adam, I'll throw, this, I'll throw this back over to you. This is one of the listener questions that we had when talking about, is it a concern that Oklahoma's defensive line hasn't had a sack in the last two weeks. You go back and you look at the last three performances for BYU against Texas in Austin, against West Virginia in Morgantown, Iowa State a week ago. Uh, those three teams had a combined eight sacks and 26 tackles for loss uh, against BYU. So this is this uh, we talked about it being a get-right game a week ago uh, for Oklahoma's offense. I think as a defensive line, 
uh, th- this is a this is a game where you might be able to kind of pad your numbers uh, on the stat sheet. I expect a big game out of Ethan Downs, PJ Adebayore. I'm I think that this is an opportunity where they can line him up over at the right tackle position and he can kind of tee off on that guy because uh, the primary focus is going to be on number 78, Suamataia, um, the six foot six, 330 pounder uh, that's going to be playing in the NFL next year. But yeah, uh, name your score, Adam. Oklahoma goes up, plays their football. Uh, I expect Oklahoma to, uh, to, to run away with this one. I will name my score. I'm going to say 45 to 17. I think we're we're probably in agreement there. I had the we we were all ultimately doing our uh, our podcast previews on here. We had the exact same score, Adam, on two different pages. So I'll go. I'll be different from you. Uh, I'll go a little bit higher. I'll give Dylan Gabriel more credit than you. I'm going to say Oklahoma gets to 55. So I'll go 55 17. Uh, Sooners roll out in Provo. Um, you interested to try the uh, cookies and ice cream that BYU gives out to the visiting team fans? I saw Is that, that real? picture. I guess it is at least for that section down there close to the field and at least versus the uh, Iowa state game there. Uh, we'll see if they make it up to uh, my seats very uh, much at the top yeah. of the end zone. Um, but I would love to see that. Um, I, I think it's a great way to welcome, you know, new fans absolutely uh, from, other, from a different conference here. Like, yeah, uh, get people to think highly of you. I think that's, that's pretty impressive. Great and hospitality. I'll be curious to see how many OU fans make the trip. I know that coming into this season, we thought the BYU was probably going to have a little bit better showing than the, than what their record indicates right now at five and five. But, I know that I'm excited to get out there. Uh, I'm going to fly out Friday, or excuse me, Thursday night. Uh, we're going to stay in Salt Lake uh, all day Friday. We're actually going to go to Park City for Denver on Friday night, and uh, then head back down to uh, to Provo, and then um, set that alarm clock for about five or six a.m. Get up and get inside the stadium by about nine o'clock, and we'll kick this thing off probably before uh, before we even have our breakfast done. We've only got a few minutes left on the podcast this evening, so we'll, we'll jump through our bets really quickly. But Tyler, you maintain your game and a half lead on me as we come down to the final three weeks of our competition here. So that means you will get to go first with uh, your first bet of the week. Let's kick this thing off, Adam. Obviously, it's been a good last couple of weeks for me. Uh, I got a game and a half lead. It hasn't been something uh, that I'm too familiar with uh, in our little bet segment over the course of this podcast. But pick number one for me, staying in the Big 12, Cincinnati, the worst team in the conference, traveling up to Morgantown to take on the Mountaineers. Neil Brown's crew, a six-and-a-half-point favorite at home. Cincinnati has lost seven of their last eight in West Virginia, they are playing very good football at home this year. West Virginia's margin of victory at home is above 20 points per game. It's, it's senior day up there in Morgantown. Give me the Mountaineers to uh, uh, beat the Bearcats by at least the six-and-a-half number. Tulane currently the favorite to get that group of five bid in the New Year's Six. Uh, they do have a loss to Ole Miss, but now they travel on the road at Florida Atlantic two weeks after struggling to beat ECU, struggling to beat Tulsa, two teams with uh, you know much inferior talent and record. And now they're going to go take on the Owls mm-hmm. in Boca Raton. Uh, Owls are a nine and a half point dog. I'm going to take the Owls to cover that. I think it's a one possession game. I think uh, they may even have a chance to knock down Tulane and really... In that case, Liberty should be your New Year's Six uh, participant <laughs> from the group of five. Undefeated, absolutely crushing teams. So i uh, got to give a plug for the, yeah, the Flames there. Always a nice way to circle back to the Flames, Adam. Very nicely done. Pick number two for me going down to the SEC. Georgia traveling up to Rocky Top to take on the Vols. Georgia currently a 10.5-point favorite. And, Adam, I know that Rocky Top, it's a hard play uh, place to play up there in Knoxville, but Georgia's the best team in the country. Tennessee – they just simply can't find their footing. They got their ass kicked up in Columbia against Missouri uh, j- just a few days ago. Give me Georgia to go on the road and cover the 10.5 number uh, against the Vols. 
My number two, going to the Sunflower Showdown. I'm taking K-State minus eight and a half at Kansas. We don't yet know if Jason Bean is going to be starting uh, for the Jayhawks. It sounds like they want him to, um, but I don't think that's enough for them, even if he does suit up. So uh, give me the Wildcats there to cover the eight and a half. Uh, Nice. Pick number three for me. Uh, Let me skip this one off to go back to it. I'm a week early on the Egg Bowl. So uh, pick number three for me, going up to Provo. I've tried to make it to not make it a habit of betting on the Oklahoma Sooners just because it's kind of tough. You bet with your heart versus your mind, but I see this being just too big of a, ma- a mismatch to pass up, Adam. So I'm going to go Oklahoma first half to cover the 13 and a half number. I think they're going to jump on them quick. Uh, BYU, uh, they're going to take the crowd out of the game. BYU is going to lose all interest. Oklahoma's going to roll on Saturday. My number three, going to Conference USA here, UTEP traveling on the road against Middle Tennessee State. Uh, I like the Blue Raiders, minus seven and a half here. Gavin Hardison, the quarterback for UTEP, he's not expected to play in this one. So um, two, three and seven teams here. I just don't think UTEP's very good. I think Dana Dimmel's probably at the end of his uh, his rope there in El Paso. So uh, give me the Blue Raiders. Very nice. See if I can get this FanDuel app to, to log in. In the meantime, pick number four for me, going out to the Big Ten. The Wolverines, Michigan, hide your signs going up to take on Maryland. <laughs> Michigan, I, I think that they're they're kind of on an FU tour right now. Um, all the all the talk in the media about their their cheaters. It's a it's a poor institution. Jim Harbaugh's the worst. Um, he's going to be suspended for for another game. But I think that Michigan's going to come out on fire. Uh, and I'm going to take first quarter, first quarter minus four and a half for Michigan. I think they're going to jump on Maryland early. Uh, and kind of suffocate him with that defense. I'll give my number four and my number five here to give you some extra time to figure out your your final pick uh, in place of the Egg Bowl. Uh, I'm going two unders here in the Big Ten, uh, in the Big Ten West. Perfect place to nail some unders. Illinois at Iowa. Of course, you got to take the under there, 30 and a half. I think Iowa's, what, eight and two against uh, uh, mm. under on the under for the year. So Illinois is a team that can score a little bit, but – uh, this game in Iowa City, I, I don't think that they've they've got it all figured out there yet. And then my number five, Nebraska at Wisconsin. We don't know who's going to start at quarterback for Nebraska. If it's Jeff Sims, you know you can count on a couple turnovers. If it's Hank Harburg, you know he's a guy that probably will be steady. And if it's Chupa Purdy, well, we know what he is. So I, I don't think that they're going to be able to score much. I don't think Wisconsin's going to score much either. Nebraska's got a great defense, and Tanner Mordecai just has not been the answer there uh, for the Dairy Raids. So once again. I'm taking the under for Wisconsin. That one's 36 and a half there uh, in Madison. Tyler, do you have a fifth and final pick for us for the week? Yeah, I don't feel good about it, um, but screw it. Let's go ahead and do it. Uh, North Carolina going on the road to take on Clemson. Dabo Swinney said, buy all that Clemson stock you can. I'm going to buy a little bit more of it right now. Give me Clemson minus six. Well, I tell you what, let's do over under on this one. Let's see, it's 58 and a half. Mm. Nope, screw Stick it. Stick with your gut. I'm, no, Stick with I'm, your go, gut. I'm, go, I'm going to the Pac-12. USC minus six and a half against UCLA. Minus six and a half. Is that at uh, at the Rose Bowl? It's at the Coliseum. All right, we'll see. That, half full. Man, that team is, is <laughs> USC is something else. We don't have time to get into that because this is the end of the show and uh, we were almost at an hour. We appreciate everyone listening to us or, or watching on YouTube if that's where you've been watching. And uh, we will see everyone again next week for another episode of the Mainline Podcast.